Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 21st of February. We are going to put this out in two days. So as usual, our disclaimer of something big happens in the world that we are supposed to cover, which I don't even know what that is. Like what would happen <laughs> that where people are like, I can't believe they didn't respond to it. It would have to be something like, I don't know, like, uh, like uh, Richard Aoki is like, you know, exonerated of all charges of being an FBI informant or something yeah. like that. Um, is that, is it Richard Aoki? It is right. I don't know the Aoki brothers, which is like Richard and Steve. No, I'm the guy who is a black Panther. And then yeah, as opposed to, be... to Steve Aoki. Yeah. Not Steven. It's not Steven. <laughs> it's not right Steven one. Devin Aoki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not the Benihana family. It's the <laughs> I follow Devin Aoki on Instagram and her children look exactly like Devin Aoki. It's interesting. Wow. I feel like you know, know. Very specific look. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's like a once in a lifetime weird supermodel <laughs> exactly. look, right? Yeah. And her and son she's looks like. It? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same like tiny face, you know, like that, that was sort of the Devin Aoki thing, right? Tiny face. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> her kids have the tiny face, even though they're, you know, three quarters. I don't know if it being Asian makes you have a tiny face, but her kids have a tiny, you know, they have the same tiny face. <laughs> it makes face you even. want to have a tiny face. <laughs> Jay's holding up, if you guys, you guys can't see him, but Jay's holding up a fist because in Korean people are always like, oh, orguri chumokata. Like it's so, it's like oh, yeah. the size of a fist. So he's holding up a fist. She has chumok face. The size of a fist and his face is larger than a fist. Yeah, but I have a huge face. So um, I don't have that. You know, maybe that's why I was following Devin Aoki on Instagram because I was like, what would it be like to have such a tiny face? Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, what were we talking about before that? Oh, Richard Aoki being can if he was like uncanceled somehow, that would be something that people would be interested in us hearing about. But outside of that, I don't think there's anything that we need to really passionately respond to. But, um, yeah, anyway, let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> everyone, I was gonna, I was gonna start this episode by saying everyone's getting canceled, you know. But uh, it is kind of true, right? Like we've been through a very strange past couple of weeks in the media. And one of the things that we decided when we started the show is that we were not going to endlessly talk about media stuff that happens on Twitter. But I do want to talk about this particular story involving Gimlet Media and Bon Appetit. Um, And I don't know. I think the reason why I want to talk about it is because I actually think there are some interesting thoughts to come out of it. And I didn't want to write any of those thoughts, you know, (laughs) and I certainly didn't want to tweet about it because I don't know, it just felt like kind of a pile on at some point, even though I did sort of do a couple of things. But like, it just felt like something was getting lost in that conversation. But uh, Tammy, Andy, did you did you follow this thing at all? This Bon Appetit Gimlet Media thing? Uh, I think I followed it at least of all, but I, our Discord was all over it this week. Um, so I try to catch up a little bit right before the show. I feel like you, this is much more in, you know, the range of your, the two of you and your world. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if, <laughs> yeah. if there's like a giant uh, argument happening in Marxist historians, I like kind of, I kind of follow it, you know? <laughs> You're like, like uh, in a chat room, but yeah. <laughs> like not the, quite sure. When like the worldwide social media, what was that? site called like worldwide World socialist socialism. website yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they're like interviewing like gordon wood you know i was i paid sort of attention but i'm sure i didn't pay as much attention as you did Andy, um, <laughs> because it's not your it's not our profession but um for those who don't know there was gimlet media which is a 
large podcasting company um, and which sold to Spotify at some point in the last three years uh, has put was putting out this thing called the test kitchen, which was a series about like a about Bon Appetit and a lot of the problems that happened at Bon Appetit. Right. And a lot of the problems that happened at Bon Appetit were around like equity and uh labor and it was about like whose work gets valued right and in the end the big the sort of big pinpoint of all of this was this woman who i believe's name is sola that's right right sola um she was one of the people in the ba test kitchen which i guess is a tv show that i had never watched or was like an online web like series a, where yeah, exactly a web, it's a web on series YouTube yeah. And, yeah and like the test kitchen is like what like 10 10 chefs in a giant kitchen and like sola was like you know, at some point consider like the most talented, or at least the most knowledgeable. And there are all these great supercuts that came out on the internet. And I think it really emotionally triggered a lot of people in ways that I totally sympathize with and understand where like, sometimes when you're like the POC and giant air quotes in these situations, you know, people sort of assume a type of competence out of you, right? Especially if you're a woman, I think this is very gendered. And they sort of rely on you, but they don't give you credit for anything, right? Like they, they feel like it's okay to, to steal your labor in a lot of ways. And that when these videos came out, when I watched them, I was like, yeah, fuck these people. You know, you feel very emotionally attached to it. And even though you sort of think, oh, this is just like Condé Nast and it is the most elite of the elite, like who cares? There's still something that like resonates emotionally. I don't know, Tammy, did you feel it? I'm going to single you out as a WOC. <laughs> or <laughs> Condé employee. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think when the figures came out, and it was all kind of like rumor based, but she was basically paid, I think it was about $50,000. So she was essentially hired at a kind of um, like a web labor rate when she should have been paid on the level of like entertainers. So there's talent. Like, yeah, like, exactly. So there's like a gap between, you know, like the kind of stuff Jay and I do, although Jay does mm -hmm. some other kinds of more talents type stuff but the production of words yeah. is not compensated yeah. very much but then yeah. if you go up to video you're supposed to get a lot of it but she never was and that was true of other women of color in the test kitchen so yeah i mean just as a basic labor issue it was extremely offensive what, what was yeah. the what was the wage gap like in theory i think it i think she was being paid half Okay. Or less, like yeah, yeah. Quote unquote yeah. talent were paid at that time. Yeah, and like, and then you see all the photo, you see the videos, and it's like the people making twice as much as her being like, I don't know how to do anything. And I know. Her, like very patiently and nicely showing them, you know. And you're just like you're like fuck these people, you know. <laughs> so like, uh, I get why it was a huge story at mm -hmm. the time. And even though my inclination is to just be like anything that happens in media is just like neoliberal identity politics, <laughs> it, it actually becomes like a labor issue. Yeah, and this I, was I, very it resonated clear. with me too, right? Yeah. Because when I was on that TV show at Vice, you know, I was a terrible. I, I, I look, I was not a good court television correspondent. It is not my talent, and yet because I have been hired as a TV correspondent, there are people who had been hired on the web staff who are doing more TV hits than I was because they're ambitious and pioneering, or not pioneering, but like, uh, what's the word? Um, they're self-starters. Entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, yeah. And so, or ambitious, let's say. <laughs> and so these ambitious people would be doing more of that work than I was and they would be paid a third of what I was paid yeah. because they were on a web pay that's scale so and that's crazy. fucked up. And guess what? They were also women of color, you know? And like, uh, I am not white, but like, you know, once all that became clear, you just look at it and you're like, well, this is 
you know, this is untenable. And then those people have to advocate for themselves at a way where it takes up half of their life and it's stressful, you know, and like they have to basically scream and and most of the time they still don't get what they what they're asking for. And so I don't know, advice. We tried to like tell everyone our salaries so that there would be more transparency so people could go forward and do all that. But like uh but still, even with that, it's difficult, right? Because they're, they can just be like, you came in at this level, your job is still this, and this person's job is this, and yeah. that's what they're hired for. So It's really um, hard to negotiate. That is not the controversy, though. The controversy is that the, <laughs> is about the podcast, about this. <laughs> about the podcast test kitchen, not the actual test kitchen. Yeah, yeah the podcast <laughs> about this controversy, which was done by the show called Reply All, which is a huge podcast, right? And um, it's a... This guy, PJ, and this guy, Alex, they've been doing it for years. They've built a big audience. A lot of what made Gimlet popular and successful was this show. It's the, definitely the flagship of, of Gimlet. And there's this woman, Struthi, who has been working for them for years, uh, doing segments and producing things for them. And like Test Kitchen was her thing. And then at some point, it comes out right after the second episode airs that uh, this guy, Eric Eddings, does a tweet thread in which he says that, you know, divulges all of this stuff that is, you know, I don't know, I found it horrifying personally. <laughs> like, so like, like many other uh, new media places, Gimlet was trying to organize, right? And they had sold the company for hundreds of millions of dollars to Spotify. And so it's not like they could cry poverty about any of this stuff. It's not like we're like a dying industry in the way that newspapers or magazines <laughs> might be able to say at this point, yeah. even in bad faith, right? They can at least sort of say, hey, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but st- shit is not great for us right now. But like with podcasting, yeah. you know, with a very public sale, it's impossible to do that. Exactly. And it turns out that this woman, Struthi, was uh, along with PJ, who was one of the you know hosts of the show, was really making life difficult for the union, right? And was doing things like organizing anti-union meetings, which made me laugh, you know? <laughs> like, I was just trying That's to, like, incredible. imagine... Can you imagine typing out that Google Calendar invite anti-union meeting? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, sending it out to five people? I don't know. Um, And so, the sh- you know, it, what happened almost immediately was, like, one of the most righteous cancellations that I've seen, you know, like it was like everyone was mad about this because they should be because the obvious hypocrisy is like these people in the union at Gimlet were trying to do things that also involve like racial equity, pay mm-hmm. equity, gender pay gaps, diversity at like the in the podcasting business, which is incredibly white. Yeah. And oh, which we is should because we should say that Eric is black also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yes, he was yes, involved yes, yes. in racial diversity right. efforts. And he was doing a show for Gimlet, right, that was, I think, basically, like, you know, I think he would recognize it as well, too. It's just like when you're brought in to be the diversity at the place, you know, like you get like you understand what the deal is. Right. And the best of the people who do that take that and then they try and make a more equitable workplace so that they feel comfortable and that other people feel comfortable and that other people can come in without coming up against this gigantic wall of like, you know, like white whiteness right which is what the podcasting industry is like and so like he was doing a great thing and just to hear that like you know that Struthi and pj were like sort of antagonists in this like it makes the whole idea of them doing a television uh podcast about test kitchen being that way you know it makes it like absurd um so tammy before the show you said i want a succinct we should do a succinct (laughs) recap of it i don't know if that was succinct but i think it was copperheads right like did i miss anything about it 
No, I think that's good. I mean, I think, I guess the one thing I'd say about Eric's thread is that he emphasized both the fact that they were anti-union and that they were really unsympathetic to diversity efforts and those, yes. and that those things were braided in that workplace. Which I can totally see, right? And that, um, and that like at some, and that they were also kind of abusive in a way, right? Like at some point, Eric was having a meeting with PJ and he was chatting with her on Slack during this meeting, which I don't even understand, you know, but like, she was like, oh, is he there? Then tell him that he's a piece of shit, you know, or it's just like, who fuck, can you imagine typing that? If it, also, if my boss told me that, like, you know, like the person that works for him on the show told him, tell me a piece, of, I would just quit on the spot, you know? And so like, kudos to Eric for like sticking with this. Right. And, you know, he has left since, you know, he has left, he, mm-hmm. he, he has his own podcast and, um, he's left that company a while ago. And so this was, it's not like he's still an employee there, but I don't know. I found this to be so emblematic of everything in media, which is the only reason why I want to talk about it, because I don't think it's just about this. I just think it's yeah. like, it's like, it like points to so many things. I felt like, you know, it's not triggered is not the right word. It's like what I would use somewhat ironically, but I felt like these moments of recognition that like flared up anger in me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like, fuck these people because like we all know every single one of these characters not personally but we know like people exactly like them in other media institutions right and like that, i don't know i think that's why it had such resonance mm-hmm. uh, what what do you think about all this oh, yeah. well first just we, i guess we should say that pj and true t are now no longer with the company yeah they yeah, quit, they right? yeah 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 so that was, it was like an really amazingly fast, fast self-cancellation yeah 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 yeah, but, I mean, um, I think I'd be curious, you know, like to hear from Andy, too, if this kind of thing happens in academia. But I think what was so kind of like incredible, kind of like a nested compact, like meta narrative here, obviously, just with the diversity inside the diversity, you know, that was propagate, per, you know, propagated by these people who had like been so harmful in their workplace. I did. I I guess one thing I was thinking a lot about in the aftermath of it was just that it was a little bit of a Rorschach test within media Twitter about whether people read things as a diversity issue or a union issue, a labor issue or a race issue. Mm-hmm. It, there weren't that many people who kind of tied them together. Like it was almost like we had to take a side as to whether we were against PJ and Truti for being anti-union or whether we had to be against them for being racist. Yes. And to my mind, like the way you actually see these things functioning in workplaces is that they're almost always of a piece. Um, and I think Eric's thread, that's why I was like emphasizing that. I think he did a really good job of kind of explaining how they are always connected or were specifically connected in this workplace. So Shruti is South Asian American, I assume, right? I mean, yeah. did that yeah. did that come up at all? Like in terms of how do we process this, that she was not the kind of prototypical white guy uh, in charge, that she was, I don't know, like uh, allying herself with the white guy in charge or what? Like how do we make sense of that or was that discussed or i mean i don't know if you want to like think, publicly speculate I, about these things i don't but. think it was like discussed particularly publicly because it's uncomfortable yeah right it's not like something you can tweet about right willy-nilly because like right, right obviously right. it's like but i will talk about it in that i feel like uh <laughs> you will podcast I mean, like, about it <laughs> i don't know these people and i don't you know i i've i've talked to pj like a couple times and i don't have any personal animus towards him and he was perfectly nice to me the time that we talked. And I don't, you know, I don't have any dislike for him outside of what this situation is. But like, I, 
I do think that like what it is is that, and what was interesting to me is that the reason why Struthi did this show, I imagine, is because so uh, the woman in the test kitchen is also South Asian, right? Mm. And so there is like a one-to-one pairing there where I'm sure that she felt the same way in a lot of ways in podcasting that Sola felt, right? That, um, you know, I, I'm the only one who can do pro tools in this way. All these people are coming up and asking me this shit and I'm like sick of it, right? Like there's a lot of that <laughs> stuff, especially in podcasting, right? Other podcasts that I've had some encounters with, like that's also how a lot of the women of color feel, right? Like where it's so white dominated, the hosts are always going to be white dudes, almost always, or like sometimes white women, right? And, you know, behind them, you have this army of like Yale, Harvard, Princeton grad, Stanford grad, Asian Americans, Latinas, like, um, you know, like uh, black people who are all sort of doing all of the labor, right? And then they sort of sometimes get to be on the show or whatever, but really like they're the ones putting the show together and they don't Mm -hmm. get as much credit. Now that this is like endemic in podcasting, it's been written about. And I'm sure she felt solidarity through that, right? But like, you know, like it's just strange in the sense where like, Sometimes you can be in that position and yet you also become like the greatest evangelist of the show, right? And you become like in this position where you are also sort of part of management, even when you're not receiving the benefits of management, right? Yeah. And so um, I don't know, like I've seen a lot of people in that that position. Like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing or? It's not necessarily (laughs) Stockholm syndrome. It's more that like they are like that they understand the game, right? Like they understand that they are going to have less power, but if they ally themselves with the actual power on, and they, and then they sort of become the biggest evangelist for like the quality control aspect of it, which I'm sure is why these people were anti-union because they didn't want to have to like not be able to fire anyone if, if it was making the show bad. So like place, Shows like this, like shows, plays in big magazines, they have this sort of culture around them in which like people are like, they will talk in very hushed, reverential tones about like the past history of that place, right? And so um, not to, well, whatever, I'll just say like when I was at the New Yorker, it was always like, oh, you know, in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, this is the great history of like the New Yorker and we can't let like the web destroy it, right? That was a concern at the time. And so like, everybody basically becomes militarized against, you know, keeping or towards like keeping the quality the same and making it like this, the, the religious aspect of it, where you're just like, Oh, this is, if you come work here, you're going to be underpaid, but like, you're part of like the greatest magazine of all time. And that's a lot of how people who are successful in media believe or they, they think because it's the only way that you can get through your entire career being underpaid. Right. Cause nobody's mm. making that much money. <laughs> um, so Yeah. There's there are these people who I think, and some of them are like at this point, you know, well educated people of color, and and they sort of fill that role, like they become yeah. the cops, you know, like they're the cops at the at the place who are enforcing the doctrine, and I think that might be what happened here. Now I don't want to speculate too much, but that's that was sort of my my takeaway from it, which is and just oh, having met some of these yeah. people before, and, where like well, they're willing to do the dirty work for management to basically and their reasoning is always like we have to like you know this is the greatest thing in the world and if we allow any of you like riffraff in there and we can't immediately fire you and replace you with somebody good then the show's gonna suffer and i don't care about anything except making the show good right like that's the sort of mantra that they would tell you um and yeah it's fucking bullshit something because you were just analogizing it to magazine land but 
To me, I was wondering whether there was something specific to podcasting culture that's more analogous to TV culture because of this issue of there being kind of a front man and it being so personality driven. Because in the past few months, we've seen so many weird implosions in podcast land, like with Rukmini Kalamaki and Andy Mills and all that stuff too, which we don't have time to get into all that. But um, yeah. you know, also shout out to Nick Kwa, who's a podcast listener and runs has been covering this stuff on hot pod, but yeah, I guess I was curious if you guys thought it had also to do basically with form, you know, that the, the way that podcasting is structured kind of lends itself to certain of these abuses. I don't, I don't even know how they're structured, even though I guess I'm on a podcast. Like what, what are we talking about? (laughs) Well, I, Tammy, I do think that there is like a legacy thing within podcasts that makes this stuff difficult. Right. Which is that like, you know how I, you know how like in football, they're coaching trees, right? And it's like, uh, like this great coach, all of his assistants are now the coaches, right? Mm-hmm. That is true of podcasting 100%, right? Uh, everyone either worked for, everyone worked for Marketplace hmm. and Planet Money or everyone worked for This American Life. And generally they worked for both places. The Planet right? Money was originally This American Life too. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So it's like all a tree that comes down from like, huh. from, from This American Life basically and everything invisibilia <laughs> like uh all these podcasts on npr hmm. planet money like the uh all of gimlet right like those dudes like alex goldman like these are these are people who are uh oh. alumni of this american life yeah okay, okay. and so within that like you know like you replicate the culture everywhere right and I, this is not to say that this american life has a toxic culture or anything like that but like i am just saying that like if you have the same culture at every single place and it's centered around a host, right? And the host is clearly the star yeah. and the host is like by far, you know, uh, or the host is also the person who like understands the form the best, right? Which I think is true of This American Life, right? Like, you know, like yeah. Ira Glass, I think, understands the form of the show the best. He actually does a lot of the editing. Like he's almost, you know, like he's extremely involved in a way. But if you do this thing where you have like sort of the godhead at all of these places. Yeah, that's the thing. And then, and then, but then the God is not that great, you know, <laughs> but then it doesn't really matter if the God is great or not great. Right. It means that like all of the sort of uh, uh, Pharisees, right. Uh, this is so toxic <laughs> analogies, but like, you know, like the, all the people are going to align themselves and the, the people that there are going to be people who want to just do the work and get in and get out. Right. And then there are going to be people who see that the clearest way for them to be successful is to just sort of align themselves with the boss because the boss is not like a normal boss where he can be replaced. You can't replace these fucking people because the show doesn't exist outside of that. Right? Yeah, that, that's, yeah. I think, uh. why this kind of soldier thing. And I and yes, this exists, I think, in a lot of different kinds of workplaces. But to me, it, it intensifies when there are these personality driven kind yeah. of talent based yeah. media. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is the podcast industry, I've tried to figure out like, what is the podcast industry? Cause it's only like what, 10 years old or so. Like what, why is it so successful? Why is, why is everyone doing a podcast? And it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird if you think about it, cause we had radio and then we moved on from radio to TV and film. And now we're going back to radio in a way, which I know it's not the same as radio, but it sounds a little anachronistic to go back to audio only. And so I guess one question is like, why, why podcasts, but also like are podcasters optimistic? Cause it sounds like you guys are saying it's this booming field. You know, Jay said, it's not like dying magazines and newspapers. It's like a thing where people can all see like this pot of gold that they want a piece of. Is that the, is that the vibe you get from your friends? Um, I think that it's a bubble, 
in a lot of ways. <laughs> and if you if you talk to people who are even in the podcasting business, they all say that this is a bubble, but that it'll exist outside of when the bubble pops. But you know, at this point, it's basically like everyone knows that ads don't work on websites. Ads don't really work on um, ads. Don't work on. Uh, you know, banner ads don't work. They don't really work in print media at all. And so you have this thing where you have a captive audience for 90 minutes or 60 minutes or 45 minutes, and it's a new cool thing. And there's nothing more that like CMOs, you know, chief marketing officers like better than convincing their bosses that they've sort of, you know, gotten mm. in on the hot new thing. Yeah. And so for a long time, that hot new thing is podcasting. And that's where, and all, and the other thing is all these e-commerce businesses, you know, decide to go full hog on, um whole hog full hog i have no idea. one of them seems much dirtier than the other whole hog on uh on, on podcasting and so casper mattresses all these sort of big places they yeah. put all of their marketing budget into that and um they must like the returns they get because they keep doing it in, in new places like broman and stuff like that that are big e-commerce building places are also putting a lot of their money into it and so it is uh the only sort of growth industry within media for a while and then you have success stories like the daily and stuff like that, which, yeah. um, you know, pump up the bubble even more because you're like, oh, could you have this many listeners? Right. Right. Yeah. But there's a clear hierarchy between, I guess, the most popular ones or the leg, like either institutional, like the New York Times ones or their legacy, like This American Life. I don't know, like Mark Marin has been around for like 10 years, right? Like there's a clear hierarchy between those get a lot of money and then there's all these like startup ones that are trying to move up and well and it depends on the field but yeah for, if you're trying to reach like a you know like a like a family in concord massachusetts you know that household income of three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a year and the kid is going to go to wesleyan then yes those are the ones but you know like the kid is probably listening to the barstool podcast <laughs> which probably makes more money you know than the other ones okay, like in okay. aggregate and okay. so um it's opened up a lot, you know, like there's all sorts of podcasts and a lot of them are profitable and uh, popular. And um, I think that's also the the exciting part about it is that it kind of feels like the wild, wild west, but it's yeah. not in these places. I don't think it is in these places that are just sort of out of that one tree of NPR. Yeah. Right. And like, that's where all the problems are happening, right? Or in those spaces, I think. Right. I, I don't. The, what was the other podcast blow up? Oh, it was about Andy Mill. Yeah, that's the, the same tree. Yeah, that's the same tree, you know. Um, of like educated public radio-ish kind of. Of public radio, period. Okay. Yeah, okay. like WNYC grads or This American Life grads or whatever, right? Like that's that's, that's that population. Um, I mean, yeah, the funny thing is like, I mean, we, I assume those podcasts uh, get former listeners in public radio at this point. Is that just uh, my impression? I don't, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, that, that no, would be I don't think radical. that's true. Man. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people listen to, you know, drive around and listen to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the podcasts get a lot of downloads, but man, a lot of people are like tuning in at 10 o'clock on a Saturday <laughs> to, listen to, to listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell. <laughs> um yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, the only other thought I had about this, Tammy, that, and Andy, I want to ask you both about this. Like, do you think, does this reflect anything to you at all about like sort of identity politics within the media and how they're processed? 
Yeah, I mean, the way it sounded like you were describing, you know, we don't, I don't obviously know these people. Uh, Sruti was that she wasn't processing it as a class or labor issue, as Tammy was saying. She was processing like the story that she was doing, right, as a sort of race yeah. race issue. Like I identify with this other South Asian or South Asian American woman. Um, and that has nothing to do with like my allegiances to my like fellow coworkers who might not yeah. be South Asian. I mean, that's what, yeah. that's the, that's what yeah. it sounded like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tammy, yeah, I, I think 100%, like it was just like a, you know, it, it was like, it was like the biggest quote POC connection possible. Right. Like without, <laughs> without any, without any thoughts otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Tammy, what'd you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think basically the same thing that it's politics without politics, you know, and that we could get in these kind of storytelling or managerial grooves around DEI, but we actually, but, you know, if you kind of scrape a little bit, it feels quite empty. And I think this is like the, just the clearest illustration of how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel. I think it is the clearest illustration of the emptiness of a type of media sort of race narrative possible. Right? Where it's like, and like, I don't think that like she was doing it or that PJ was doing it without, with, while being aware of how absurdly contradictory it was, or else yeah. I don't think they would have done it. Totally. I just think they didn't think about it. Yeah. You know, like, I think it was literally like, I've been in that position before. I'm also, I am of the same race as this person. And, you know, like, therefore I understand it when in reality, the problem with, with, uh, with Sola was that she's being paid less, right? It's not about the emotions of ambition. And that's what I think is mm-hmm. basically the real sort of ongoing narrative behind a lot of the media's way of dealing with race is that like, hey, like, you know, people in these elite institutions feel bad, right? And that um, like we should bond over like the ways in which they're made to be feeling bad. And the thing that I really appreciate about what Eric wrote in his thread was that he was like, no, we were like trying to get a better deal for everybody (laughs) and improve the culture of this place. And you didn't want that, you know, like you didn't want what you, you were trying to like make us feel like shit, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) while, while sort of, you know, going around and being like, oh, I feel so bad for this other person. It's crazy. You know, like you, you have the exact, you have like a complete clear example of the ways in which you can improve these things for other people. And you just didn't do it. And like, in the end, it just becomes this totally narcissistic quest to like find yourself because somebody who looks like you is dealing with something that is vaguely similar to you but then you totally misanalyze what is the problem there and then you make it just about like oh why can't i just break through like this ceiling you know um whatever that ceiling is and then yeah Mm -hmm. you you hear this criticism a lot right there a lot of for a lot of liberals they're fine with the one percent versus 99 percent divide it's just that if the one percent were more diverse right more women more people of color then they would be happy, but they don't want to change the one versus 99% mm-hmm. makeup. One thing I was thinking was this came up in a kind of very unrelated situation in this uh, hi- discussion with uh, about history, but uh, in colonialism and imperialism. But the, this person I was talking with, um, her name is Natasha Collins. She was talking about how in like in the, in the history of like imperialism and colonialism, there's still, you know, you could be anti-imperialist and anti-colonial and anti-elite or whatever, uh, but there's still kind of this, sense of shame around the people who get conquered or who lose right and and there's this weird way where like the the victors the imperialists the colonialists or in this case the bosses right are still kind of seen as like all-powerful and in a way like the consumer would be like i want to be that person right and i don't want to be the 99 percent that yeah, yeah, have, yeah have all the complaints and feel shame for losing or being colonized or all that stuff 
And so there's a kind of a way that even anti-elite sort of populist narratives in themselves can unintentionally reinforce this idea that it's better to be the winner, right? Or it's better to be the victor um, than not. And, uh, you know, I, I think about this a lot in terms of like, there's a lot of talk about, you know, decolonization or against elite like you know a lot of like sort of woke or left liberal kind of criticisms of uh you know all these bad things that powerful you know white men have done but in a lot of cases those stories still center upon center upon like the power of the the powerful elites and they don't really get to anything beyond that and in a way that kind of reinforces the the message that these are the most powerful people and this is like this is what we should focus our attention on um, and I think, you know, some people could read those stories or hear those stories and think, I still want to be the powerful person. I don't want to be the the 99% that gets stepped on by everyone else. Uh, I don't know. That right. was something that just, that just kind of popped in my head. Similar question to around education stuff where it's like so much of the most like, uh, I would say, stridently posed questions. And so much of the activism is around making elite institutions have the same racial composition as the rest of the country. And you're like, all right, so are you gonna be happy? Like, you know, like yeah. do you, if, if, if Harvard is like 20% black and 30% Latino and 4% Asian and 2% Jewish and 60% white or whatever, like, is that, is that good for you? You know, like, is that, is that what you want? And you, are you going to be okay with the fact that nothing changes for anyone except for the few people in those institutions? Right. And that you, maybe create more of a multicultural elite, but like everybody else still getting their heads, heads kicked in by the cops, you know, like, like there's no, um, I don't know. I, I actually thought that like, you know, the Bernie movement and all that sort of stuff would bring a lot more of this into question, but it really hasn't right. Like it just seems like, I don't know, maybe not though. Do you think Sola gets, can- or do you think that Sruthi and PJ get canceled like five years ago? Maybe not, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Maybe I it mean, is better, yeah. Yeah, I think like the process you were describing, Andy, is basically like, I mean, the way I understood what you were saying is that there's like a descriptive process that threatens to become a normative process where you're kind yeah. of like reinstantiating power. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. I would argue that in the workplace, if you have a union, the union is the force that blocks that movement from right. description to normativity. And right. So I, I actually think like this episode for me, the reply all like my first reaction was, holy crap, like media unions are so popular. Yeah. Like this is amazing. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> because so the people I who cover think, it are in unions, right? Yeah. And we're just <laughs> things have changed. Like yeah, yeah. every, you know, shops are <laughs> yeah. organizing all over the country. Like the momentum is behind us. And so I to me, this is both like. I think it's actually a testament to the organizing that's been done yeah, over yeah. the past decade. No, so I think you're right. Very yeah. excited. No, I, I, I take, I think I was wrong. I take back what I just said because no. in the middle of saying it, I thought, wait, no, but obviously the fact that they were immediately, I don't even want to use the word canceled. The fact that they were basically had to <laughs> quit their to jobs. Yeah. That, um, and that Gimlet was like, okay with losing their flagship. I don't know if they're okay with it, but they're going to have to eat it, you know, like, and that's yeah. good. You know, like, are you kidding me? You're holding an anti-union meeting and you're blocking diversity initiatives and then you're turning around and doing a show about diversity? Like, you know, like, (laughs) fuck you. It's it's so remarkable that you would have someone who isn't technically management hold an anti-union captive audience meeting. Like, that is so insane. (laughs) It's insane. I've never heard of that, actually. So. (laughs) 
No, I think, I mean, yeah, I think you're probably right, Tammy, about the takeaway. I guess the question is, you know, um, just in general, how do we frame these stories about power? You could frame it as like yeah. this powerful person did a bad thing and everyone is a victim. Well, who wants to be mm-hmm. a victim? But you could frame the same story as, you know, these these people who were uh, in a way powerless, except for like, you know, their economic leverage they have, were able to like check the yeah. powerful people. And those are both, those stories are both technically true. And like, but, you know, how often do we emphasize the second story as opposed to yeah. the first story? Right. Yeah. So, no, so. it was. It, 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 you're right. It's amazing that it happened. <laughs> it was so satisfying, you know, in a lot of ways. It was so fast because, too. It's like instant gratification. Like I don't, I don't wish suffering around amongst people, you know, but I will say that, like, definitely. you know, for me, like the part where I'm like Sruthi sympathizing with Sola, right? My thing is like just remembering all the people who, like, you know we're in that role of basically making it impossible for us to try and figure out how to get any type of better treatment, you know, and just like kind of imperiously looking down their nose at us and being stuff like saying stuff like, Oh, well, you know, like all that matters is making this X thing the best it can be, you know, like stop your agitating, you know, don't you want it to be good? Isn't that why you joined? It's like, no, fuck you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And like, Obviously, if the employees are happy and well taken care of, the chances of the thing getting better are are yeah. increased. And it's like if you can't see that and your only thing is I'm going to be a stooge for management, yeah. you know, and I'm going to fuck you over so that I can like get the thing that I want. Like, I think that's crazy. You know, it's like a type of pathology, but it is so en- it's so endemic in media. And yeah. I, th- I also think that's why people responded so strongly to it, because they were thinking about the person that they know who was like there, you know, who was in that role and they fucking hate them. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. The, run, the run um, dogs of imperialism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Such a great phrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so in the end, I think you're right. Andy, you're right. It's a happy story in a lot of ways, right? Like, um, like yeah, the, it can be if the way we tell it is correct. Yeah. 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 And that, I think it probably inspired a lot of people who are starting to, organize or who have organized to you know to realize that they had they do have power right um and that that they can get the things that they deserve uh which is you know we're all in favor of um you know i don't know fuck blow all of it up (laughs) (laughs) um all right on to our next topic we wanted to talk about uh minari a little bit right like it is uh it came out last week i believe right it's on streaming services and um yeah it's so weird now how movies come out oh my gosh yeah i wasn't even aware of this until you have to like sign up and there's like a limited amount and they don't want everyone to watch it all at the same time i guess because um, they want to yeah. keep demand up or keep scarcity going or something. Well, I don't know. they're trying to replicate like the festival circuit that exists in real life online. Yeah. So that's like what Minari did after Sundance all last year. But then they also wanted to release in 2020 so it would be eligible for the awards. <laughs> yeah. So it was like limited and now it's full and streaming. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you can watch. What plat- I'm sorry. I, I watched it through one of those links. So I don't. Is it on Netflix? I think so. No. Well, isn't this great though? Because there's people in. The U.S. who would, might not normally be able to watch it because they live too far away from a city that would show it. Yeah, and now anyone with internet true. can watch it, right? Yeah, that's great. That's really true. Yeah, I think it's still just in theaters right now. 
Oh really? Okay, so it's not yeah. on like a big streaming platform. No, I, I think you sign up. You sign up as if you're buying theater tickets. Exactly. But then they yeah. give you like a link okay. to watch it. On so your now computer. it's like widely released into theaters around the country that you yeah. can okay. choose from. Obviously. Yeah. 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 I just feel bad for the people who worked on the movie because they oh don't get gosh. to do any of like the parties or <laughs> or like red carpet stuff. And yeah. I don't know. So you know, like for Isaac, who is a director and writer, it's like he's been you know kind of grinding on the indie circuit for a long time and making films that are that he wants to make but that don't come with giant budgets and glamour yeah and like you know like this is his moment to feel glamorous and it's it's he had it at know? sundance i guess before the oh yeah, yeah that's true that's true and the film did well at sundance which i imagine yeah. if you're like the talk of sundance it must feel amazing you know? <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i'd like to be the talk of sundance one day um all right well what, for, Andy, good, which, yeah. for Andy, a good, what, for you, good you, reason you, um yeah yeah for a good exactly. reason not because i got not because i got drunk, canceled because i got drunk and like said something horrible to like uh you know um i don't know some big movie executive whose name i don't i don't know any of their names yeah. anymore the only one i knew was harvey weinstein um <laughs> is he did he is he dead no okay. i think he's in All prison right. you know he got he got covid i think that was one of the yeah, early stories, true. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, if he made it through coronavirus, then, <laughs> man, maybe it's not the threat that we thought it was. Andy, what'd you what'd you think of this movie now that you've seen it? And Tammy and I had seen it earlier because of uh, yeah journalistic engagements, but like, what'd you think? I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things to say about uh, my the way I would you know um, um, what's the word like understand it is through like this asian american broader thing i assume you two have more korean specific insights um into it um one thing i was thinking the kind of the first half of the movie i was just like so stunned that this was considered a foreign language film by golden by the golden globes yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. like for me at first it was like this kind of abstract funny racism thing haha and then you watch the film and it's like this is this is like I'm completely American, right? And it's there's exactly. so much English in it, and it was very relatable, right? In a lot of ways, and so it became very personal. Uh, you know, it's more like <laughs> Golden Globe. The Golden Globes are telling me I was foreign or something. So I, I got a little. I was kind of distracted by that for the first half. Yeah. Do you want to just explain that in case somebody people don't know? Yeah, I mean the the first big award show is the Golden Globes, and they put him not in the best film category, the best drama, but they put him in the foreign language <laughs> category, even though you know like. Um, the star and the writer and the director are at least American raised. I don't know if they're American born. And there's a story about <clears throat> this family from you know South Korea living in the U.S. And there are many English language scenes and non-Korean scenes um, throughout the film, which you know felt very relatable. I think for a lot of us. And um, yeah. so that was honestly, unfortunately, a, a bit of a distraction uh, for the first half. I was just like. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is so American. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and like movies like Inglorious Bastards are not, we're not considered foreign language films, we should say. Yeah. Right. So there's definitely a double standard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of that was in German. Yeah. 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 I don't think I, I don't think I finished that one. Um, yeah. It's uh, like, well, what from, how is it different? Because Tammy and I obviously have very specific Korean. Mm. Uh, view on it which i don't think actually matters so much in i the don't think film. so either. i don't think it's like a film that you only understand if you're korean no. or that you have a deeper understanding of if you're korean i actually think that if that was true that you know that isaac and steven would probably think that the film was not successful right like if it was only <laughs> right. for koreans sure, that yeah. could understand it but like uh what how, how, 
like how did you process it like what was the asian american part of it that you thought about i think um you know i mean it was something we talked about offline is like you know this comparison between asian american films 20 30 years ago like the joy luck club right and where i see i don't watch a lot of films but like between this and the farewell two years ago i do think that there is now uh these films are exploring the ambivalence of coming to the united states mm-hmm. in a way that the joy luck club did not right the joy luck club was kind of predetermined that China was bad and going west or, you know, east across the Pacific Ocean was just good, you know, even though it's awkward and painful um, and there's these sort of like, you know, cultural differences you have to get used to, like in the end, like our life is better here. The Farewell explicitly made this, that kind of this theme of this question of whether or not it's better to come here. And I think um, with Minati, you know, I think people are reading it as an assimilationist film. Maybe just like the assumption is just that any film about immigrants is going to be about how great it is to come to the U.S. But I think there is a lot of there's a lot of it's not as explicit, maybe, but there's I think if you came away from the film, you'd ask, you know, do these characters, are they happy they came to the U.S.? And I think it's ambiguous by the end of the film. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in the end, like they will stay in the U.S. (laughs) I think that that, the door has been closed, but I think their feelings are, are more ambiguous. That's the way I read it. I don't know. How, how did you all feel yeah. about it? I think definitely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Tammy, what'd you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I should just say that Isaac's an old friend, so I su- have supported his films and I like his films generally. Um, his first film, just so people know, is is this feature length film called Munyurangaba, which is the first film um feature length film in the Kenya Rwanda language from Rwanda. So he and his wife had been in Rwanda. She was doing work there. And then he started making a movie with amateur actors and it went to Ken and um, it's really, really beautiful. I think like along with this, those are his kind of top movies for me. Um, And just, he has like a very kind of lush and sentimental like movie making style, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's like cheesy, but it's very kind of emotional and, you know, it doesn't shy away from a kind of earnestness. Um, I I really liked the details in Munati. Um, I think one of our pod friends, Jane, who just wrote a review that's like on the specificity of the film. And I think that really comes through. And just to Jay's point, like it is obviously a specifically Korean immigrant narrative and there's all these wonderful details like the wash basins they use and the sponges and the foods they eat, like all that stuff is very resonant, but you don't need to know any of that to know that it has a kind of authenticity to it. Um, It's just very like accurate. And um, I think it benefited also from having Korean actors, not just Korean American actors who I'm sure smoothed over the dialogue. Um, Yoon Yodong is like a super legendary Korean actress who plays the mother in the film yeah she was incredible she's extraordinary and i mean yuri han maybe is my favorite character in the film she plays the wife i think she had kind of the most complex role Um, oh so the because the ambivalence about being in america was all expressed through her and her face is just incredible at doing that you know like you could there would be one conversation and she would go through like 15 different emotions about being here <laughs> and being angry at her husband for bringing them here and all this. Yeah. Um, incidentally, without spoiling, because I think it comes up really early, but they work as chicken sexers, meaning that they're looking at chicks butts to see if they're <laughs> yeah. Boys or girls, um, yeah. and yeah. the father of a friend I grew up with came to the U S uh, to do that. 
which I thought was so was kind of funny. To well, Isaac's parents did that too, right? Like, yeah, a like, lot of this is autobiographical. So Isaac grew up in Arkansas. This wasn't shot there, but it's meant to evoke that. And um, some of the scenes, like one that involves a fire, that was that actually happened. Oh wow! In I his life, oh, yeah. Wow. So um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of great. I was details. like, that was unrealistic. <laughs> I know that seems so dramatic, and then you're like, oh yeah, immigrant lives are like inherently dramatic yeah. because they're making this ridiculous decision, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I liked seeing a working class immigrant family on film. This so way. that was the question: Is chicken sexing? Is that like a quote unquote unskilled labor job? They just like if anyone, oh, yeah, anyone, sure. okay. Yeah, and it was a lot of Koreans, which was, was addressed Koreans, in yeah. which was addressed in the film, right? Like yeah. where they're in Arkansas, and then <laughs> yeah. the, the only other Korean people in Arkansas are also chicken sexers. Yeah. Um, so, like, I think is it a visa issue or something like that? Where like do you like so for example, one of my aunts when they came over from Korea, they had to work in a chicken factory for mm-hmm. some amount of time in central North Carolina. Um, so they're getting sponsored and, by their yeah, yeah, American employer. Over, yeah. Right? And yeah. in some of those yeah. situations, people actually had green cards already guaranteed and could come over that way. Um, my dad did something similar through like a car mechanics placement. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I related just to the fact that I have relatives who I think were in Arkansas and Colorado and just like these random places, oh, really? right? You would yeah. assume like, you know, if you yeah. come to the United States, you go to either like LA or New York, but it's, but like, there's a lot of people from that generation that wound up in the middle of nowhere. I'm sorry, this is super insulting, but you know, you wound up, you wound up in these <laughs> the sort of, of like nowhere. people that are places that are like atypical <laughs> destinations for for Asian immigrants, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people in their family have those stories, um, and they were like totally. field specific. It was like they went to a graduate school for agricultural science or something in in this A and M somewhere. Um, so that was that that was resonant for me also. Yeah, it was strange. Like, if if uh, it was interesting to see, because I think that the one thing that the film contributes to, outside of its ambivalence, but you know, and tied to the ambivalence, is just sort of like, what is actually the what is actually the thinking pro? What is actually the life of like a first generation immigrant during this period of time? Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, this is something that I talked to with Stephen Young about when I was writing that profile of him. But I also talked to Isaac about it because you know I had to report and talk to the people involved in the film and and the thing that was interesting to me was that like it was they 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 both said the same thing which is just like we want to be able to see our parents you know um generation without processing it through us right so like it's not like what is my parents it's not the smelly lunchbox story right like why does my mom pot pack me this lunch that makes me feel alienated at school right it's not like uh why did my parents come here? Why are they successful or not successful? And how does that reflect on me? It's like, well, what are they, what were they actually thinking at that time? Yeah. And I don't know. I think that that in itself is like, you know, like, I think that was new. Like I had not seen people in that stage of with young children and, mm-hmm. you know, and the children are too young to actually be able to process any of this in any sort of meaningful way. Right. Like they're sort of taking it in for the first time along with their parents and yeah, and I, I think that the way in which they portrayed it is accurate. It's just like some of these people have big dreams, you know, and that's sort of what Steve's character in the or Steven's character in the movie is like he wants to become like basically a produce magnate, right? Like he wants to be a produce, produce baron. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of like the both the delusion and the ambition that they come in with. And it's difficult because, you know, like those are inherently capitalistic enterprises, right? Like they want to sort of make money. 
but it is an honest ex- assessment of, of what a lot of those first generation immigrants are thinking. Like they're not thinking I'm going to come in here and, you know, like spark the revolution or anything like that, yeah. or I'm going to come in here and just be this docile working class person. Like they're trying to move up and the ways in which they move up and then also their commitment to always moving up is extremely ambivalent, you know, yeah. and like goes up and down and up and down and up and down. I think that's what the film shows, which is why, I don't know, I appreciated that part of it. Yeah. I, I was thinking the film, it'd be really touching if the film ended um, by say, by kind of fast forwarding 30 years and they had created like the greatest U.S. supermarket chain in history, which is H-Mart. Because I was in H-Mart <laughs> yesterday. And I was like, this supermarket is the best supermarket in the whole country. And I want to learn all about the Asian supply chains that create H-Mart. And then I was like, oh, that's what Minardi is about. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so Minardi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be a different ending. <laughs> but, uh, how incredible. Crazy rich Asians. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I know. Um, there are a lot of movies that you could make like that. You could make like the the uh, Forever 21 story. You know? Oh, my God. You could do that. that would be <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize I was Korean. Yeah, yeah. I think I've finally given up so I can just talk about it, but I've been trying to crack the Forever 21 story for like 10 years now, and it, they just will not talk to you. The, but, fam- uh, the Korean family that started it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the best business story possible. Yeah, you have but, to. Man. Uh, they just now, especially now that it's sort of bankrupt, they like yeah. can't. They really won't talk about oh, it. Oh yeah. You know, I tried. You know, um, the Pinkberry story is much less interesting. That's great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but Forever Twenty One is like the one if you want to do like just. It has a bit of like, everything. Yeah, immigrant capitalism. Yeah, pure like I am going to take the rules of this country and I'm going to fucking make myself a billion dollars. <laughs> I'm going to steal everything. I'm you know like I'm going to hire all these lawyers. Like uh, I mean, it's great, you know. Um, maybe one day, <laughs> maybe one day they'll talk to me. But uh, I don't know. There's never been anything great about it, investigative about it, right? Tammy, have you read anything good? I mean, I, I pay attention to it. I've never read anything great and investigative about it. No, I think there have been a couple of good sort of like Business Week type features on yeah, it. Yeah, but Bloomberg yeah. Business Week did do one feature where they got inside, you yeah, know, and, and and the daughter, the daughter who went to Princeton, I believe, now runs the company. And so the reporter was talking to the, uh, was talking to the, um, to the, to the reporter. But um, but there's nothing about like the yeah. sort of matriarch of the family who is apparently really like you know the like the person behind the, all of the success, yeah, and absolutely. she will never talk to reporters. Do you know why? <laughs> she's smart. You know? she's, there's nothing <laughs> yeah, to get. Never talk to a reporter, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you run Forever Twenty One. Like, what's the point? Yeah. You know. Like, why would I talk to you? Like, listen, I can't give you a good reason, but, you know, I would like to do this uh, article that I can option into a television show and personally (laughs) profit from exposing your your misdeeds. (laughs) um, You know, that like that. I don't know. They're too smart for that. Um, Yeah. Any other thoughts about this film? Yeah. I I have one question is. And maybe, you know, Tammy could talk about this because, you know, Isaac, is there a sense that there is a greater audience for these types of films out there? Uh, with I don't know like more bougie Asian American consumers who want these kind of films or um, is this oh, is the intended audience you know obviously the intended audience is white right but also like Asian Americans as well will kind of hopefully pick the film up as well is that kind of the the thought process 
I guess we could talk about the fact that it came out on A24. That might be worth exploring okay. a little bit. So A24 is this kind of new-ish film company that's released a lot of quote unquote like ethnic or like minority films you know like moonlight famously uh, is an a24 film yeah. and i think farewell was as well farewell um, was definitely that makes sense yeah, yeah and um you know and brad pitt was the executive producer of minati so certain yeah. like it's definitely been elevated to this kind of new game you know new level so i do think the fact that there are this sort of this sort of kind of art house but still hollywood company that's like very willing to carry out these stories has been like a big boon to this particular form mm. but yeah but i think definitely i mean the stuff we talk about on this show about the just like the diversification of immigrants and you know yeah. how varied like the stories now can be i think we're just in a different time and a much better one from my perspective in terms yeah. of storytelling the confidence to have so much mandarin in the farewell and so much korean in right? this i think reflects yeah. a difference right between I don't know 30 40 years ago when... I think so for sure yeah and I, I do think yeah you know, I do think it's partially because they're more you know that the Hollywood producers and agents and all this stuff are more diverse than they were before so not everything about Hollywood representation <laughs> is bad, you know but it's like you yeah. have more voices in the room to convince people to not you know have the whole thing dubbed over and the voices <laughs> <be> like, oh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Voices be like, uh, I forget. You know, like I was watching uh, Totoro with my kid who watches Totoro all the time. Yeah, there's like, uh, it's like some child actor is like all the voices of, in, in that, but I can't remember the name. But so it's a terrible story. Oh, right. Because like, your kid can't watch it subtitled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <she> can't read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're a dub, we're a dubs, no subs family. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> one of us can't read um. <laughs> I mean I think it's also you know it's also important that this film exists in a world in which like Okja and Snowpiercer mm. exist you know because already there's that kind of like Pong Juno strain of like transnational filmmaking where it's mm, existing yeah. somewhere between Korea and the U.S. as well so I think yeah. you know there are there's a lot more obviously like Chinese co-production a lot more Korean right. co-production um, and yeah. so I think that kind of ties into this as well, although we want to obviously reject the fact that this is a foreign language film. Right. But like speaking about like the capitalism behind it, like that is related. Yeah. And also people want these films to do well in other countries as well. Exactly. Yeah. So um, like it's going to be a hit in Korea. What, were, you, were you guys like moved when Parasite won? What was that two years ago at this point? What, last year? No. No. Was, no, I but know. I'm just like... I don't know. I'm so like anti award show, meaning that I'm like a zealot about it. You know, like I, I think I go too far. Where I'm just like, who fucking cares about the Oscars? <laughs> I think it's just because part of my life, you know, I had to pay attention to this stuff. Before I got to Grantland, I had never really watched an award show. You know, like yeah. I had never watched the Oscars or anything like that. And it was because you know I was cool and like I don't you know who gives a shit about that stuff. <laughs> You know, like there's more interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding about the cool part, but you know, I just didn't care. <laughs> and then I got to a place where everyone just talked about it all the time, and I felt some compulsion to want to pay attention. And I just fucking hated it, yeah. you know. And I just hated the politics around it, like you know, like uh, yeah. you know, trying to process like race politics and equity through these fucking award shows, and it just like I don't know. It always made me angry. So um, yeah, I don't. I was not moved when he won. I did think that. 
I mean, it was cool to see someone speaking Korean on stage, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was, was cool. cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool just to see these, some of these actors I'd seen in like Korean dramas, right? They're like crossing over. Exactly. And they're hanging out with like Leonardo. And, yeah. And Brad Pitt was like, wow, this is like worlds colliding. It's kind of cool. No, yeah. it's great for the Korean film nice. industry, um, which I think makes good films, but it's, you know, I was not personally like, oh, well, I, I can achieve anything I want. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the like thick nationalist happiness I feel when like the Koreans do well at the Olympics, you know, it's like know. ridiculous. What but are they, what a are little they good bit, at? You know? What are the Koreans good at? We're good at archery. archery, speed skating. Okay, short, no, short track speed skating. Yeah. Was there a figure yeah. skater at some point, or she, Michelle Kwan's American? Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Kim yeah. Yuna. Kim yeah. yeah, Kim Yuna. She yeah. is like the greatest, uh, but <laughs> it's a lot of archery. Some weightlifting. All the yeah. North Koreans, I think, are better at weightlifting than we are. Um, we. I know. <laughs> right. On that note, we have a lot of we have a lot of questions for you this week, um, and we're going to go through them. And uh, you know, some of these are from our Discord channel, which, if you join our Patreon, that you can join. Conversations are extremely lively on there, and uh, you know, sometimes I'm I I they're some of them are very. In t- like uh, high level in terms yeah. of like having had to read a lot of books <laughs> I log in and I look and I'm just like I don't know what these people are talking about you know and I'm just like I'm definitely not going to read these books you know so then I I don't know um, but then I'll, you know there's a whole spectrum of conversations there's a lot of talk about the NBA and stuff like that but um, some of these questions are from there I don't go into your, your gaming channel I don't know if Tammy does that Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't decided on what video game we're going to play or computer game we're going to play, but <laughs> since I'm bad at all of them, um, I'm sure it'll be entertaining for everyone. All right, so our first question is from Rena. Um, she says, I just listened to your episode about the working mothers, and honestly, I've personally felt that they have garnered actually a lot of sympathy and moral higher ground as persons deeply affected negatively by the pandemic. The idea of those who are doing, quote, too much and, quote, juggling a lot seems to warrant a lot more recognition in my mind than many people are suffering from long-haul COVID-19. And those suffering from severe exhaustion and consolation of other disabling symptoms, including issues with cognition, brain fog, and unable to return to work for even six months after contracting the illness. Long-haul COVID-19 is creating chronic problems that may overwhelm the healthcare system as a secondary impact. And there have been links to it in development of chronic fatigue syndrome, post-viral syndrome, and autoimmune disorders. I was wondering uh, your take on this type of ableism and uh, and overvalorization of productivity. My personal experience has been that I encountered so much dehumanization from the medical care system, dismissing the manifestations of my illness that has only been amplified by those in the pandemic who are overworked and exhausted and unable to empathize with the plight of the sick whose fatigue they see as a vacation instead of a recognition of how incredibly difficult and stressful it is to care for your needs while incapacitated, and the stress of not knowing how you will stay financially secure if you cannot return to work because of ongoing illness. I think there are a lot of issues with, of ableism that are pervasive in the Asian American community, from physical to mental health struggles. I was wondering what your take on this is. Friend of the podcast, Rena. Rena, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? It's a good question. It's a good. It's a good point to to point out. Um, I mean, there's two questions here. I think that there's a, the last one about ableism in the Asian American community it could be its own episode, and we could talk about that. Yeah, that one I'm fully on board on. I mean, good lord, the lack of sympathy for any type of 
disability or even like mental health, you know, obviously we don't have to talk about it, but it's there. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. I think uh, also like the valorization of overproductive productivity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think uh, there is a way to read the stories we talked about last week in that, in that way, which is like, these people matter the most um, and we're sympathetic to them the most because of um, how important it is to, to like, you know, to, to do, to be doing too much or juggling a lot at the same time. I think the, and I guess it's a good question of like, how do you, how do you, how do you direct these stories in different directions um, into different political conclusions? I think you could also read those stories and hopefully, you know, this is, an opening that we we left open last week, you can read the story as more that the state should be doing more in general to help out everyone, no matter what, like a sort of universal policy, as opposed to a policy that specifically helps, you know, this particular demographic of, um, you know, mothers, mothers who are like helping with uh, children learning at home, but also are, are, you know, have a job that they're telecommuting to. Uh, But, you know, that kind of goes back to our original discussion in the first section, which is like, how do you process, um, how do you process how someone is struggling, right? Is it just that, that particular group or is it a broader, a broader thing? And so hopefully the way to process, you know, the stories of how overworked a lot of people are is also that uh, the problem isn't that we need more support for people who work a lot. It's more that everyone, the state should be doing more for everyone. There should be more universal policies. Um, I don't know. Tammy, your thoughts? I agree with that. (laughs) I guess I, I just also wanted to credit, like when we were talking about, excuse me, about wages for housework and the welfare rights movement people, they were very attentive to ableism and they did have in mind people who needed to stay home because they were ill or elderly people, you know. So when we talk about care work, I think, you know, I don't have a kid. I'm not just thinking about parenting, literal parenting, but all the various forms of care work that we do. And some of that is self-care if we have disabilities or are very sick. So I think, you know, the arguments that that we were putting forth while we weren't specifically addressing this issue do apply um, or should apply at least. Um, but but no, I, I, I mean, I definitely take Rena's point that we don't actually know what's going to come down the pike from this thing, you know, in six months, a year, 10 years. Um, and so thinking about kind of what do we need to to care for this population is is a very important point. Yeah, I have a friend who had the same memory fog thing and mm. took him out for like four or five months. Oh my God. He still can't remember things, you know? I actually needed him uh, for a fact-checking thing. And I, he was like, I can't remember. He's like, I can't remember <laughs> what, what happened when we were in graduate school. And I was like, is that because of your long-haul COVID or do you not remember? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know but like, but not to make a joke out of it because it really did debilitate him. But I, I do think that her, that like Rihanna's point is really correct, which is just, look, if all we care about is getting people back to work and we think that when people go back to work and kids are back in school, that everything is fine, like that is not the truth, you know, and that the long-term health and economic destruction from this like we can't even gauge it at this point like nobody can gauge it like nobody knows what it is because it's so unprecedented but yeah people sort of being unable to function or or having long-term health effects um and not even thinking you know not even be able to think about like oh well can i am i doing my job am i productive in the same way you know they're just like actually i can't even get out of bed you know like 
I don't know. It's uh, I think that 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 Rena is right, and that that type of narrative is really glossed over because so much of the idea behind everything around COVID is this desperation to get back to normal without really questioning, yeah. like, do we even really like normal? You know, I do yeah. think people. Per- people question that personally though you know a lot of lawyers i know you know they're like this is a they're like they're like what was i doing with my life you know good. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly they're going through what tammy went through like 12 years ago or something like that they're just like what why am i doing this you know like what like why was i why was i driving to san francisco every day and sitting in that fucking office you know like what for what you know but I don't think that there's a larger question of like, you know, why is society structured this way? Right. Um, so Rita, thank you for that. Um, our second question is from Jackie. Uh, it is, uh, hello, Jay, Tammy, Andy. I wrote that actually um, in the text, it's, uh, written Tammy, Andy, and Jay <laughs> without even thinking about it, which shows, you know, some narcissistic impulse of my own head, apparently. Uh, is typically portrayed in the media as something that brings people together, has no boundaries, and typically centers the white gaze of, quote, hey, try our food, and you'll understand who we are, slash, we're not so bad, lunchbox tropes, etc. It's also a place for activism in the wake of BLM, quote, decolonized food, and quote, food as a form of resistance. Um, I find all this interesting, but I am grappling with the idea of, quote, decolonizing food if it centers the white gaze. Also, I'm suspect to the, quote, gatekeeper and police-esque approach of God of cookery and in talking about Chinese cuisine and authenticity. Oh, so this is about that Instagram thing, right? I don't know what that is. Yeah. Okay. So there is like a specific. And you're, you're, the, one that, you're the one that put these in here. How do you not know? No, I mean, I thought the question was good. I don't know what God of cookery oh, okay. is. <laughs> okay. So I will explain the context of this question that I just read for the first time, which is that there's an Instagram account. I think this is it. So if I'm wrong, then I'm totally leading us down a wrong path, but I think it's relevant here. And it was about like this Korean adoptee who was creating Chinese food or he was made a Chinese kitchen. And in the Chinese restaurant, he was like sort of saying, hey, you know, like I'm trying to make Chinese food that's not like goopy or something like that, right? And he was like making general sales chicken and stuff like that. And so this big Instagram account, I think that's called God of Cookery. Is that like is that a play on the Stephen is that a play on the Stephen Chow film? Have you seen that? What's it called? Oh. Is it God of Cooking? It does say Jackie does say it's a movie produced in the nineties. Maybe that was it. Oh. Oh. I have no idea what that is. Um (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. Then I've let I've led us down the wrong path. Um, well, I mean, that's I don't think that's what God of Cookery is, but I think that Instagram thing is still relevant, right? People yeah, were defending yeah, yeah, Chinese yeah. food as not goopy. Yeah, and there was like they like were trying to cancel the uh, they were trying to cancel like the 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 Korean adoptees restaurant for being like disrespectful to like the great tradition of Chinese cooking, right? Yeah, yeah. And like I. And like this, obvious. It is the Stephen Chow movie. It, it, she said the Stephen Chow movie is incredible. Have you seen it? What's it's just it like all of his other movies. I think I've only seen Kung Fu Hustle. Oh, it's like if you can imagine Kung Fu Hustle, but it's like a chef. <laughs> <laughs> all of his movies are the same, and they're all so good. I don't know. I'm like a, I'm like his number one fan. I like Stephen Chow. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, resetting all of this. So that Instagram thing was like, basically, we're going to cancel this thing because it's disrespectful to Chinese cooking. And so I do think it was it was this sort of idea of like, 
like what are we doing like what is the police-esque approach right in talking about this like what is the idea that there is some sort of norm here that is quote authentic and like respectful and then everything else is not right so similar to the mahjong thing which i totally like rolled my eyes uh-huh. at with the white women trading yeah. like you know kind of weird colored mahjong things fucking gives a shit you know <laughs> women like to play mahjong they made some fucking mahjong tiles like who gives a shit you know like yeah like maybe they're a little bit like kind of mildly racist in the way that they advertised it but like really like do you care that these like i'm just impressed that the white women like to play mahjong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, i don't really care that they play mahjong nor do i think it's like a sign of racial healing yeah. or anything like that but it's just sort of like Wow, you know, they must really like Mahjong. Mahjong is really hard. Every time I've learned it, I forget how to play within a day. I have no idea how to play Mahjong, <laughs> but I feel like I would enjoy it. Tammy, do you know how to play? No, I, I don't oh, know. That's how what to we play. should do on our Discord channel. <laughs> we, should do a ma- a Mahjong we should do a Mahjong. We should do a Mahjong channel and we should all learn how to play. Um, yeah, I would love that. <laughs> and maybe we can, as a joke, uh, order these $800. Yeah, that's what the first Patreon uh, is going towards once we get the payment. And we're going to spend $800 of it on these Mahjong tiles. Um, all right. So the question I think is really just like, how, do, how should we feel about these movements around around yeah. food? And um, I don't know. Andy, what do you think? You wrote an entire book about this, basically. <laughs> I, I was thinking after our kimchi nationalism episode that I talk about tea nationalism in my book. I totally forgot. I totally like blinked out on that thing I spent a decade of my life on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what I think is interesting is that the kind of foods that are trying to be decolonized are foods that 20, 30 years ago, I think would have been considered gross and nobody would want, would have, or not gross, but like low class, right? And so what's, I think there's an interesting class dynamic here where, uh, you know, to get back to like my question about Minati, right? Like there's now more bougie Asian and Asian American, if we're talking about Asian food, right? Um, um, consumers who are demanding, like they get more recognition for how high, how good and high class their food is. And I keep thinking about this with regards to all these sort of new glamorous Chinese cooking things on YouTube, which is that I feel like 20, 30 years ago, you know, if there was YouTube, there'd be a lot of like Japanese food things because Japanese food was considered legit and high class earliest, right? But there was, there'd be nothing for Chinese stuff. Like I remember when I was trying to learn Japanese 20 years ago, there were like 50 textbooks to teach me how to learn Japanese. When I was trying to just teach myself, you know, embarrassingly like improve my Chinese on my own, they were like very hit or miss. There wasn't a very good industry for Chinese language materials. Whereas I feel like there's a lot more now because there's a lot more Chinese language learners in the US uh, or, you know, around the world. So I think Chinese food and maybe these other foods are kind of going through belatedly what kind of happens when your country gets richer and your diaspora gets richer, which is they start to kind of, um, you see these like movements towards like standardization and greater, better efforts at publicity. And I think decolonization is part of it. It's, uh, and I don't, it's not like I'm against it, right? That, that we should not have so many um, white chefs telling us how to cook Chinese food. Maybe we should get some uh, people who like learn how to cook in China um, to teach us how to cook Chinese food. But there's also this question. Is that, is that what's meant by decolonized food? Just basic question. I didn't really know what it means. I think so. Is in it this not? Context. Yeah, I assume it is. I mean, do, do you, do you have, I don't know if you have any different sense. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess it's like whole question of like, what is authentic and not, I guess, the, and I guess Jackie's ambivalence is if you, if you go too far in that direction, right, then you start to get into like what is authentic versus what isn't authentic. And um, 
um, you know, you could start to like, you know, try to cancel. Maybe a white chef is actually really good at making Chinese food or really good at making Korean food and we shouldn't cancel them because they're going to make it better than we do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't say that, Andy. <laughs> We're going to get us canceled here. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't I have a real problem with that type of, I think I've said it 50 times on the podcast, so I don't need to repeat it. <laughs> I just hate this stuff so much, you know? Like, I don't, I don't understand why we're at this place where we have to exercise so much of our, you know, uh, not, I don't believe in stuff like political capital. Like you can say whatever you want. Right. But so much of our attention is placed on like policing food. You know, I, I just don't get it. Like, why is it disrespectful? And, and like people, I cook all sorts of different types of food, right? you know, and it's like some of the foods I don't really like, you know, and it's like, I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> gives a shit. like if somebody's like, oh, I think that like, you know, like, uh, like pundegi or something, right? Well, like whatever, like, you know, like if stuff, if they say that like certain parts of like Korean food are gross, a lot of stuff, that stuff I think is gross too. I don't know. I just, I don't get why like it has to be interpreted as somebody assaulting like your core being unless you think your core being is like just food you know i don't know i've never understood it um and the other thing to kind of also bring this together with like the you know the leads of videos in china is that i think a lot of the consumers are people who don't know how to make this food but yeah. who, who live in cities or they live across the world in the u.s but their family did make it for them when they were younger and so they want to kind of, there's part of them that feels like by being able to make this food or watch these videos about how to make this food, they can reconnect with their family. Now I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just, I just kind of think that these are some of the dynamics that might be explaining the imp these impulses. Um, that's my, that's my best guess. Yeah. Um, I think so too. I think it's something tied up in childhood or something like that. <laughs> not to over like pathologize, but you know. Um, but it's also, like we said before, it's just because there's so little connection, period, that you just grasp onto whatever and you get mad about it. And food is obviously a very convenient thing because it's the only place where people are actually that interested in being Asian in any sort of way, you know? <laughs> Apparently now also Mahjong, so we've expanded. Um, I mean, Tammy, all right, third question. Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, Tammy, what? Yeah, no, I, I don't have anything really useful to say. I mean, the one thing I was going to say, but then I didn't say because it sounds like I'm trying to be woker than woke, is that it's very hard, I think, right now to digest a lot of this stuff because the main food issue is that people are hungry. Yeah. Like, we're just, we're in actually like a food crisis right now. Um, in the US or the worldwide? US, you know, we're like, yes, um, just like totally anecdotal, but yesterday I was doing some work in Sunset Park and I, um, in, which is the Chinatown in Brooklyn for people who yeah. don't know, but it's also Latino. And there was just this huge food pantry line right. and the worker who was manning it. And it was almost all Chinese people who are middle-aged or older. And the worker who was manning it said that this church that's been doing this food pantry for many, many years before the pandemic, obviously um, they, they have a thousand people in line every week. Um, you know, yeah. it's just so to me yeah. right now, like the way I, I've been thinking more about food is like how great it is that people are thinking are doing like mutual aid around food and that, you know, we're having more of an investment in, in you know, food justice. The food ownership stuff just feels really relevant in that context. But yeah. Again, and that's also in terms of like factory farming and climate yeah. and everything like that. It's just like it's exactly. such a weird thing to like focus on in terms of food. Right. 
like yeah. our like even like stuff like food deserts or whatever like there's better ways to get mad about food that's my only take you know so. if someone called if someone called uh uh mapo tofu goopy guess what it's fucking goopy i'm sorry <laughs> doesn't mean it's bad you know i love mapo tofu but yeah. if you're like what what is consistent you're like yeah it's goopy um all right so last question this is for andy um, I I, you're going to have to help me through this one, Andy, because I don't know what the tweets that this person is referring to are. But uh, the context, I have a question for Professor Andy Liu, since he's in uh, academia. The, con- the context <laughs> is that Professor Laura Huang made many people angry over her Twitter post to raise awareness. And then there's a link, but I can't see the tweets. What were the tweets? I, I didn't yeah. actually look at that closely. I, I think we're just supposed to think this is generic, like Asian, anti-Asian violence sort of okay. stand up for yeah. our community kind of things. Some of the responses to her tweets included, um, you know what, I'm going to just do the listeners a favor and I'm going to just look at it right now. Um, oh, wait, it didn't work. Oh, I guess she deleted it. No, um, you didn't have, there's like, yeah, one more character. I don't see it. Uh, I want to see how passionately people... Should I read it or should I give you guys a link? I want to see how passionately people, including other POC, will stand up for Asians. There have been a 2,000%... This feels wrong. Increase in Asian-directed hate crimes recently. Um, violence that has taken many lives. Yet we rarely see those stories covered in the media. And I guess a lot of people replied by saying... Um, uh, yeah, there's like somebody asking her to apologize, or agents to apologize right. for. You didn't stand up for um, black people, or you're blaming black people, or something. Latasha Harlins, um, etc. Um, the major crit. This is from Jenny's question. The major criticism that she is that she compared the level of attention to BLM when she hasn't tweeted anything about it herself. However, she has included both anti-black and anti-Asian racism, among other isms, in her research seminars, recent book, and signal boosts of other authors. Is it inherently risky for professors? This is the actual question. Is it inherently risky for professors to make posts about non-academic activism topics? Several of my professors who have carved out time to talk about BLM in class, even in a different topic like probability, have not tweeted about it. Wow. As a secondary wow. question for everyone, how does research into racism quote count as work against racism? Thanks, mm. Jenny. Is it what, what's what's your what are your what are your guardrails here at, at uh, a professor? I think I think uh, the worst case scenario is the two famous ones. In 2014, a professor named Stephen Saleda tweeted something about oh, yeah. Israel-Palestine that got him his job, which he was about to move into, taken away from him, and he still is no. He has he's been out of academia since. And then G- George Sicarello Mahler in 2016 tweeted kind of this kind of dumb joke about white genocide, but he was kind of using like it was like air quotes. It's like the right talks about white genocide, but then they went after him for like wanting to kill white people so those are the worst case scenarios because he eventually had was forced to resign his job i think um i think in, though I, I was thinking about this i honestly think this is just sort of i don't think academics are necessarily special and twitter is necessarily special uh mm-hmm. in the sense that it could be twitter it could be anywhere where there are people who want to go after certain academics and make a, an example out of them um but you know we just talked a whole segment about two podcast producers losing their jobs um not 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 comparing this right but just sort of saying like um this stuff happens um and doesn't isn't necessarily twitter specific or academia specific right like these you just kind of like i guess guess the question is do you say something in the classroom versus something outside the classroom i think you know 
I don't know. It just kind of like depends on what you say. Like, I don't think BLM is inherently risky for academics to talk about publicly, um, depending on where you are. I think some institutions, they might take it seriously. I think there's an example in Mississippi where that has been ha- happened recently. Um, I don't think at my institution or in the Northeast in general, it's a, t- it's a touchy t- topic. Um, um, but you also careful, though, right? I mean, as a non, you know, you're, you're trying to get tenure, you, you have your whole career ahead of you. For like, sure. I'm sure you restraint yeah and maybe if i had tenure i would be more freewheeling i um yeah the other thing is the other awkward part is like i don't want to say stuff like i don't want i don't want stuff to come off as if i am like legitimizing like steven salada and george sicarella maller you know getting forced Mm -hmm. out of the institutions by saying yeah of course you should be careful right because you don't because you i think all of us are careful uh, I think you got you two are careful, even though you know you're not like there's not one institution you can get fired from, right? You just don't want to say something that's going to be used against you. Um, I assume, right? Um, uh, but you don't also want to start apologizing for what happens yeah. to people with where stuff is unjustly used against them, if that makes sense. And that's kind of maybe the awkward yeah. part about this conversation, right? Yeah, I don't. Um... No, no. And then the the first part of your question I was interested in was like, I don't know. I think that like, uh, I think that this particular moment with the attacks on elders and the activism around it, I don't know. I I think it's good. It's okay to be cautious about it, you know? Um, And I think it's okay to, I think it's okay to make sort of, you know, constipated statements about it if you feel the need to make a statement about it. Because I think there is a lot of stuff that is difficult about it, and I don't think that people should just pop off and forget everything else that happened in the past and make false equivalences and stuff like yeah. that. You know, and I think if you get blowback from that, then that's the fucking internet. You decide to hit send on that tweet. You know, um, now getting fired or whatever. You know, obviously I'm against that as like the podcast free speech absolutist, but right. you know. I don't know. You have consequences for the shit that you say, you know, like uh, the the thing uh, that looking at the tweet again, the thing that pissed off people, I think, was she says, I want to see how passionately people parentheses, including other POC. I think that including other POC was her kind of trying to start uh, a race war, <laughs> you know, kind of kind of like do a, a oppression Olympics a little bit saying like, yeah, we stand yeah. up for you. You should stand up for us, you know kind of thing and then yeah. it invites an analysis of all of her previous tweeting to see if she's done the right yeah, things in exactly. order to- i know i know i, mean, I know one that's kind of unfair about that i don't know this woman i don't like business school professors i have no skin in the game here but <laughs> i think also people aren't people are not systematic on social media and like yeah you know i don't know i mean i think we can also try to be a little bit tender towards one another if we've have some reason to have good faith, you know, because I don't think people are thinking like, okay, I've done A, B, and C on Twitter and now I can do D, E, and F. You know, it just doesn't yeah. really work that way. Do you all feel like you have friends who like just joined Twitter and they're going through all the stages you already went through like eight years ago, which is like, I'm so, I'm compelled to be really competitive and dunk on people. And then you start having that apologetic sort of day after, like, why did I do that? And they're like, they're like, yeah. new, they're like new to the medium, whereas, you know, to varying degrees, I think all three of us are like very cynical about Twitter at this point and it's useless and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting canceled right now as we speak because Yashar Ali like took a joke that I made on Twitter seriously. And I'm like so annoyed 
uh, and I, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I so, don't know. Some people don't know. It never like this, ends so. where you're just like you just regret being on a stupid platform. I fucking hate that guy. Can I just can I say that? I know. And I know. Shut up. Like, what is your job, dude? Again, and it's just like I don't need to care about Chrissy Teigen anyway. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, stupid. Tammy. What if you? What have you? You know. What What is your statement about as fellow Asian American about Chrissy Teigen? <laughs> like, fuck you. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, on that note, you know, I hope you listen to the podcast, Yashar, and that you know maybe you should recognize that some things are jokes, and that you don't have to like fucking dunk on people who are making jokes. In fact, it makes you look stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we are we do this uh, once or twice every single week. Please join our Patreon community. Um, for a small donation, you can join our Discord. You get bonus episodes. But, you know, it's also helping us keep the lights on on the show. So if you like the show, then we would really appreciate your support. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can... You know, there's a Patreon message system. That's one of it. Um, there's uh, there's a whole uh, other thing that we're yeah. You can reach out to us on email. That's a whole other thing. I was like, <laughs> what am I even talking about right now? I'm so distracted because I'm mad at this Yashar Ali guy. Um, there's an email. Time to say goodbye. Pod at gmail.com that you can reach us at. Twitter works. You can DM the show. You can DM me, Tammy, or Andy. I think all of our DMs are open. Um, and uh, yeah, we will keep reading your questions. Thank you for supporting the show, and we will see you next week or maybe later this week. Uh, all right, 